Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, this is Jim Stein, your host on the New Books Networks for New Books in Mathematics. Our guest today is Professor Leonard Wapner of El Camino Community College. He is the author of the critically acclaimed The P and the Sun, which discusses the Bonnach-Tarski theorem, one of the most intriguing counterintuitive results in mathematics. He is here to discuss his most recent book, Unexpected Expectations. I read this book. I found it absolutely fascinating, and I'm really looking forward to this interview. Len, welcome to the show. Hi, Jim, and uh, thanks very much for having me. It's, uh, I'm looking forward to this as well. It's really fun talking about these topics. I absolutely agree with you, but why don't you get things started by telling the listeners something about yourself, and in particular, how you came to write this book, Unexpected Expectations? Uh, Okay. I've uh, taught mathematics at El Camino College for about 40 years now. And um, what brought me to the topic is um, uh, over the past 40 years, I've taught probability and statistics many times. And uh, within that course, uh, typically you spend a day or two on what's called expectation or expected value, mathematical expectation. Um, It's a fascinating uh, topic. I mean, I can go into that in a few minutes. But basically, I was so fascinated by that that uh, I just decided to write a book about it. Uh, Would you like for me to go into sort of an explanation as to what is mathematical expectation Oh, yes, I definitely yeah. would, because yeah. I think that it's very difficult to really talk about something like this. And it's easy to, you know, I think it's relatively easy to understand oh. at least the basics of what expectation is. And then you realize that it's such a fascinating concept because it has not only amazing practical ramifications, but interesting and provocative and counterintuitive ones as well. So yeah. why don't you uh, start a little yeah, bit and ab- talk about it? A- absolutely. Uh, expectation, I, I guess the, the, the most straightforward way to think about it is it's a long-term average 
uh, to the outcome of an experiment having a numerical outcome. And, and maybe the easiest way to explain that is imagine tossing four coins um, over and over again. Now, each time the four coins are tossed, uh, a, a question arises as to how many heads will there be among those four coins. Um, in, in, intuitively, the, the, the answer is two. And, and we say the, the mathematical expectation of the number of heads for that experiment is two. Or in other words, if that experiment were done many, many, many times, on average, uh, one might expect uh, two heads. And interestingly enough, for any one toss of those four coins, uh, there's a less than 50% chance that exactly two of them come up heads. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's three-eighths. But uh, nevertheless, it's the uh, expected number. Um, and, and another way to look at it is with gambling. There's lots of gambling um, uh, applications. Say a roulette wheel. Imagine betting uh, $1 on, um, say, red. Uh, well, uh, every time the wheel is spun, uh, then the outcome would be uh, the player is either going to win um, uh, I, I, I'm sorry, let me, let me change that a bit. Imagine betting $1 on, say, one number. Uh, the player bets, say, $1 on number seven, for example. Uh, every time the wheel is spun, um, the player is either going to win $35, if the player is lucky, if uh, the ball lands on number uh, seven, or, uh, in all probability, the uh, player will lose uh, the $1 bet. But on average, if this is done over and over and over again, um, um, the player is expected to lose precisely one nineteenth of a dollar uh, per bet or per spin of the wheel. Now, on any single spin, of course, that's literally impossible, but it's a long-term average. It's a negative expectation. We say E equals negative one nineteenth, which means the player in the long run is expected to lose, and of course, the house or the casino is expected to win. What, what piqued my interest in this, it, it appears to be a very straightforward sort of thing, the mathematical calculations are easy, but is this a beautiful dichotomy between the broad applications of mathematical expectation, they range from game theory, quantum mechanics, business, econ, marketing, even uh, French philosopher uh, Pascal, Blaise Pascal, uh, used it uh, to uh, rationalize uh, why one should believe in God. Uh, there's uh, all of these applications, and then that, in contrast with these uh, very severe paradoxes that uh, result, uh, very surprising, very beautiful. Uh, it, it's such a beautifully contradictory thing that I was just fascinated by it and wrote the book. Well, one of the things that I noticed is that there are lots of instances in which expectation or expected value occurs in real life that we just sort of pass over, even though we know it. For instance, we know that our car is expected to last about 200,000 miles or things like that. And we know that, you know, some cars are lemons and they die early. And there, of course, there are these people who've driven the cars for 450,000 miles. But I guess, you know, you can talk about 
about the expectation of the mileage of a car or the life expectancy. That's another place that we see it in conjunction with um, how long we have to live if we're born, you know, with uh, it's known that women have a longer life expectancy than men, things like this. So it's a pretty universal concept. Um, why don't uh, you tell us about some of the common delusions about expectations that many gamblers share? Okay, yeah, there's a lot of applications uh, with, uh, of course, in game theory and uh, uh, gambling uh, in particular. Uh, in the book, I discuss two of the mes- uh, misconceptions. Um, um, one of them is known as the uh, gambler's uh, fallacy. And uh, what we need to understand there, what's behind this fallacy is that Every spin of, say, the wheel of fortune or every spin of a roulette wheel, um, every roll of a pair of dice, uh, the outcomes are independent of, uh, uh, of what occurred previously. So, so when a pair of dice is rolled, uh, the dice uh, certainly, uh, uh, the pair of dice has no memory of what, what transpired uh, previous to that. And... Um, uh, uh, the, the, this, this sequence of outcomes will in no way determine the, the very next outcome because the, uh, uh, there's no memory involved. The gambler's fallacy is uh, when a gambler is, say, losing maybe a sequence of even money bets and then uh, assumes by incorrectly applying uh, the law of averages that uh, since um, um, a, a win is due maybe close to 50% of the time, that uh, the uh, gambler, the player, is now due to win after this long sequence of uh, losses, and maybe then, therefore, starts betting heavily, assuming there's going to be a win. And again, that's certainly not the case because the the dice or the roulette wheel, uh, um, you know, has no memory of that uh, whatsoever. Uh, it's a fallacy. Now, I, I've got to be clear about that. There are uh, exceptions in certain games where there is. Uh, a memory, I'm using the word memory in, in, in quotes here, where there is a memory involved. There's a, uh, uh, there was a very famous book written in, I think, in the late 60s by Edward Thorpe called Beat the Dealer. Um, it's about the game of 21 or blackjack, uh, where there is a theory, uh, a scheme, a, a, a betting method, which in principle will work. Um, when cards are dealt out of a deck, if the cards are not put back and if the deck is not reshuffled, then the deck, in a sense, does remember uh, which cards have been removed. And if players uh, are able to count the cards that have gone by, the cards have been removed. And if the player has uh, uh, some ideas to what cards remain in the deck, then they could, been, uh, they could bet accordingly and uh, turn the game uh, into their favor. I think uh, there was a movie uh, in 2000, maybe 2008, 2009 that came out called Bringing Down the House with Kevin Spacey about, uh, I believe it was MIT students that were actually using uh, this scheme. Uh, That scheme is not a fallacy, although casinos are able to get around it by playing with multiple decks and by shuffling uh, often. And I also believe casinos have the right to remove players uh, if they believe they're... uh, or suspect uh, they're counting cards. The other uh, very uh, standard uh, fallacy uh, system, although it just absolutely does not work, it's called the Martingale system. There's several of them. We we can call them Martingale systems for doubling up. Uh, Imagine uh, betting on a uh, even money bet 
And uh, if the player loses, what the player is to do in this uh, scheme is to double the bet. So imagine the player bets, say, um, $1 on red um, in roulette loses, then the player would bet again $2 on red. And if there's a loss, then then the player would bet again uh, $4. And if the player loses, then the player keeps doubling each time. If the very next bet the player were to win $8, then if you uh, go back and add up the losses and the wins, it was, one lo- uh, it was losing $1 followed by losing $2, followed by losing $4, ultimately winning $8, and the player is up one. So the uh, flawed system is that inevitably a win will occur, and at that point, the player will have gained one uh, prior to the sequence of losses. Uh, In principle, this works, but uh, in practice, it can't uh, for uh, two reasons. One, uh, the system presupposes that the the player has a uh, arbitrarily large bankroll, to uh, bet, uh, to make some very large uh, bets uh, in the event that uh, the player keeps losing and must keep doubling the bet. And then the real stopper on the system is casinos impose uh, maximum bets, which uh, prevent a uh, sequence of losses, uh, uh, which would prevent the player from doubling up uh, indefinitely. So uh, neither system works. One of the things that you mentioned at the start of uh, this interview is you mentioned that expectation applied even in such incredible situations, or at least incredible to people who aren't familiar with the concept of expectation, as rationalizing a belief in God. And you mentioned this is known as Pascal's wager. And do you suppose you could discuss this a little? Yeah, it's... um it's considered by many as uh, historically as actually the first uh, well-understood application of uh, expectation. Um, French philosopher Blaise uh, Pascal uh, offered up this uh, argument. Uh, it, it's a mathematical argument using mathematical expectation as to why should uh, one should bet on uh, the existence uh, of a deity, uh, of God. Um, the uh, assumption uh, that Pascal makes to begin with is that if there is a God, then we are incapable of knowing so uh, with certainty. And the, uh, the, the gist of the argument is uh, one has more to gain than uh, one to lose by believing in God. And uh, what Pascal does is he assigns uh, numerical uh, payoffs to four possible cases. I'll, I'll go through them uh, quickly. If one believes in God and there and God actually exists, then the payoff then to the player would be infinite, uh, reflecting eternal bliss. Uh, if one believes in God and God doesn't exist, then the consequences are minimal and the payoff is uh, insignificant. If one doesn't believe in God and God does exist, Pascal uh, assigns a payoff of negative infinity, meaning uh, damnation or eternal damnation. And then last or fourth, if one uh, doesn't believe in God and God doesn't exist, then uh, again, there's minimal effects and the payoff is insignificant. Um, When you go through the calculation uh, given in the book, the standard calculation for mathematical mathematical expectation under these conditions, uh, it turns out that uh, the expectation is highly positive if one believes in God as opposed to uh, uh, 
negative if, if one doesn't. And uh, uh, based on uh, that argument uh, of the two choices, to believe or not to believe, one should believe in God. Uh, uh, it's an interesting argument, um, although there are uh, objections to it. Um, it, it uh, would you like me to go into those uh, objections? Or? Sure, why not? Okay. Um, well, uh, there's several. Uh, I mean, to the, to the faithful, to the believers, the whole thing could just be dismissed. They don't need such an argument. Uh, to begin with, uh, and uh, they could uh, just dismiss the whole thing as a trivialization of religion. Um, although, uh, for that matter, non-believers could uh, 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 suggest that uh, God is a, a, trivia, a trivialization, trivialization, sorry, of, of nature. So, uh, anyway, there there is that. The argument, uh, Pascal's argument, also fails for the strict atheist since the uh, strict atheist assumes that uh, uh, God doesn't exist, and uh, in which case uh, the expectation boils down to sort of a comparison of uh, uh, minimal effects one way or the other. Um, A a strong argument against Pascal uh, is uh, given by evolutionary biologist uh, and atheist uh, uh, Richard Dawkins. And... Um, he strongly objects to Pascal's uh, wager argument, arguing that believing in something is is something that you either do or you don't. You, it, it's not a matter of policy. It's 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 not a decision you rationally make. It's it's something deeper than uh, than that. It's it's not a strategy that you adopt uh, to win or to lose, and. Uh, uh, and then, according to Dawkins, the whole uh, Pascal wager thing is is sort of pointless. Well, we've gone from gambling to uh, uh, religion. Why don't we get back a little further to Earth? Uh, one of the other industries that I know relies heavily on the computation of expectation is the insurance industry. And perhaps you could tell us a little bit about that. Yes. Um, mathematically, um, you, we can think of insurance as a bet, um, where the wager is uh, what one pays for the policy each year, and uh, basically the player is, uh, in other words, it's the premium, and the player is betting on the possibility that there will be some sort of misfortune in the player's life. Uh, it could be death or a traffic accident or in need of medical care, uh, in which case uh, the player wins the bet in the sense that the insurance company uh, pays off. Um, When you uh, look at the uh, facts behind um, all insurance, the mathematical expectation is negative. In other words, on average, uh, it's a losing bet uh, mathematically. uh, In the long run, uh, policyholders lose. Uh, And, and of course, that that is to be expected. Uh, That's an expected expectation, not unexpected, because um, insurance companies uh, need to make a profit, and uh, they do. So in in terms of a bet, it's it's, it's a bad bet. It's, it's, It's a losing bet. Uh, nevertheless, uh, I want to be quick to add that there are reasons to 
play this game. And uh, there are reasons to buy insurance. I mean, I think most of us have insurance of one type or another. Uh, let me just go through those reasons uh, quickly. I, I think, in my opinion, the, par- the primary reason uh, that one buys insurance is to prevent a catastrophic loss that one just could not afford to uh, sustain uh, um, uh, otherwise. Uh, another reason to buy insurance is often uh, by law we're required to. Um, liability insurance uh, in, in California, uh, driving a car, you're uh, required to have. I, I think a third big reason, if we're honest about it, that people buy insurance is the peace of mind factor. It's a psychological thing. And, uh, you know, if we're going to lose sleep uh, over not having a particular type of insurance, no matter what type it is, then maybe it's uh, worth it and it's worth buying it. Um, uh, other than these reasons, I'm not so sure there's any good reason to buy insurance. It's, it's not uh, financially smart in terms of paying off in the long run. It, it doesn't do that. But by the way, a quick side note here is... Um, the peace of mind factor is is certainly a, a, a good reason to buy insurance, and insurance companies market their policies uh, that way. If you think about the logos used by insurance companies, they're they're always uh, they evoke these images of security or caring. Uh, uh, um, and um, I, I write about this in my book, and I actually I had requested from one of the big insurance companies that I can use uh, their logo in, in the book when I was discussing this, and uh, I submitted the request. I asked for permission from the insurance company, and they denied uh, <laughs> they denied uh, me and uh, my publisher permission. Um, I found that a little bit odd. I, I don't. Uh, think they have to be defensive about this, but uh, I guess they felt a little bit awkward about my writing about such a thing, and uh, we uh, sort of did without the uh, um, uh, logo. Uh, another example of a very unnecessary insurance is extended warranties insurance. It's basically the th- same thing. I think most people buy extended warranty insurance uh, because of the peace of mind uh, thing. If, if that's the reason you're buying it, uh, one buys it, well, then okay, uh, I, I could certainly understand that. But as far as a, uh, an extended warranty paying for itself, uh, on average, that's simply not the case. I think what's happening here is that you brought up a very interesting idea because normally when we think of expectation, we think of measuring our payoffs in dollar amounts. Um, but when you think about measuring our payoffs in other units, such as peace of mind units, if indeed something like that can be defined. And I guess it, you know, I guess it could. Um, Then sometimes we don't seek to maximize expectation. We speak to maximize peace of mind, which is measured in a different way. Yeah, that's true. You're you're sort of uh, leading up to um, this idea of utility. And it's, uh, if I can talk about that for a bit, Please do. Yeah. yeah. Um, when there's a payoff um, associated with, uh, say, a game or an action or whatever it happens to be, there's the actual payoff amount, which could be in dollars. But then uh, we can also think of it in terms of uh, utility. And the utility uh, associated with a payoff is its um, intrinsic worth. Uh uh, you know, how, how, how good does it feel? Uh, or in other words, um, um, how good does, does the win of a positive uh, payoff feel? Or the flip side of that is uh, how bad does a, a loss feel? Now, now in, in general, or for small payoffs, 
maybe the uh, utility is proportional uh, to the payoff. I mean, um, you know, winning a hundred dollars is uh, certainly it feels maybe uh, twice as good as winning fifty bucks, and uh, uh, we might be willing, uh, therefore, to risk twice as much to win a hundred bucks as fifty dollars. But but think about it. Uh, for you or me or maybe most people, would winning $100 million feel twice as good as winning $50 million? Now, for me, the answer is no. Uh, good is good. And uh, you get up to a certain level there where the utility sort of levels off. I mean, the more you win, the utility certainly, it certainly feels better and it goes up. But um, $50 million, $150, $200 million, yeah, or frankly, I would be almost, uh, the utility for me would be more or less the same for um, uh, all of those uh, things. So when you take utility into account, and if you think, well, we will play to maximize utility, which is probably what we do more often than not, then sometimes that differs a little bit from maximizing expectation. Of course, the first example is with insurance. If we're buying insurance to feel good, then uh, it's the utility we're, we're factoring in and we're, we're trying to maximize, not the expectation. Uh, there's other examples. Um, uh, playing against a child, say, if it was your son or daughter, um, sometimes uh, losing might actually feel better. And... Uh, um, it's just the, the, the nature of the game we're playing, and then we might play differently because of that. Um, there's other considerations um, that sort of play into this. I'm not sure they're a direct part of uh, utility itself, but uh, there's other examples where we play in such a way and not necessarily, uh, which doesn't necessarily maximize a payoff. Uh, and they uh, sort of come into the form of these uh, psychological aversions uh, we, we all have as human beings. Um, the uh, big one is uh, called loss aversion. Um, many people believe uh, that, uh, in, uh, uh, that it hurts uh, to lose uh, far more than it feels good uh, to win. Um, a- athletes uh, will often say, that uh, when they play, uh, they just hate losing. Uh, they're playing not to lose. It's just uh, losing is just horrific. Whereas in some sense, it's their job. They go out there to win, but uh, above all, uh, just uh, don't lose. Uh, in other words, if we have this uh, uh, strong aversion to losing, we might, uh, or a player might be willing to tolerate an irrationally high risk so as to avoid a certain loss. Uh, Quick uh, anecdote there, I'll just insert uh, a few years ago, uh, before the beginning of the school year, uh, my wife and I had the chance to go to Las Vegas for a couple of days. And uh, in doing so, uh, uh, it would be a relatively short trip for us. It's a four hour drive. Um, I would miss a day not of teaching, but of meetings at work. So I called in and uh, I spoke to our dean and asked what would be the consequence of, uh, you know, if I missed that day of meetings. And he told me that, well, uh, I would lose uh, a day's pay. So uh, I had to decide if I wanted to do it or not. So I thought about it for a while and I thought, well, it really wouldn't be worth going up there to lose hundreds of dollars just 
just right off the bat uh, to lose all that pay. But I really wanted to go. And then, and then just by reframing it in my mind, I convinced myself, was I, you know, I really wasn't losing anything. Um, it was sort of a, an unrealized gain. It was money that I never had to lose to begin with. I just wouldn't be paid that in the first place. And when I started to think of it, not so much in terms of a loss, but in terms of money that I never had, uh, then the trip was worth it. And we made the trip and I felt so much better about it. So, uh, it, you know, I, I mean, I, I was playing games. I was just trying to rationalize or irrationalize, whichever way you want to look at it, uh, the trip. Um, another aversion that uh, people have is this um, inequity aversion. It's, uh, it's the golden rule. In other words, we, 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 we like to do unto others as uh, we would have them uh, do unto us. And uh, you, you know, this gets into altruism and charity and that sort of thing. But when we behave that way, that's certainly not behaving in a way that maximizes any financial gain to us. It makes us feel good. We believe we're doing the right thing. Um, I don't have the specifics in front of me right now, but in the book, uh, it turns out that uh, animals behave this way uh, as well, even very, very young children. Um, you know, birds do it, bees do it. Um, it's, um, it's really a, a very interesting thing. Um, another thing that gets us to behave in a way that where maybe we don't maximize expectation is uh, these uh, off-target or inaccurate estimates of probabilities. We, we need certain probabilities in order to calculate mathematical expectation. But if our subjective estimates of these probabilities is way off base, then we will often uh, make irrational decisions. Uh, we tend to magnify uh, certain probabilities that are very um, visible, you know, risks associating with being struck by lightning and terrorism and shark attacks and that sort of thing. Uh, um, they're certainly horrific when they occur, and uh, they do occur, but in actuality, they occur uh, much rarely than most of us uh, estimate them to occur. So, I'd like to switch gears a little now. I've always been attracted to ideas that are counterintuitive, such as the Banach-Tarski theorem that you discuss in your book, The Pea and the Sun, yes. and obviously you are as well. I don't know whether the idea of Blackwell's bed is counterintuitive, but it is a little surprising. Could you tell us a little about that? Yes. It, um, well, I'll tell you, it's uh, very counterintuitive to me. And uh, it, the thing about Blackwell's bed is it's... Uh, so simple and so surprising. Um, I call it Blackwell's bet because um, the mathematics behind it is based on the work of uh, David Blackwell, uh, UC Berkeley uh, statistician, mathematician. Um, there's various ways to describe it. Uh, I'll mention a couple. Um, imagine you have placed before you two closed seal envelopes uh, in which you know there to be an amount of money, uh, a different, uh, unequal sums of money placed in each envelope. Uh, you know nothing, absolutely nothing about uh, what's in either envelope. Uh, you don't know from what distribution the, uh, uh, the uh, amounts were determined. Uh, but the two unequal sums sealed in these two envelopes are placed before you. The envelopes look identical. And you are to randomly uh, pick one. Um, and then you open it. So you pick one, open it, and say, uh, and you contact, and say uh, you see one hundred dollars in there. 
The question is, uh, is there any means whatsoever uh, that you have at your disposal to determine whether the contents of the other envelope, the sealed unopened envelope, is higher or lower than the envelope that you've just opened? Now, intuitively, the, since you have no idea where these dollar amounts came from, intuitively, uh, my answer to that would have been, well, no, it's, it's a... Uh, you could guess uh, the other envelope is higher or lower, but maybe the best you could do is a 50% chance of getting it right. Um, anyway, uh, as it turns out, through a very simple scheme, you can, in the long run, do better than 50% uh, in that prediction. And it's a simple scheme. Uh, you, by any means whatsoever, you select a, you need a randomizing device, and you select a random number. If that random number is higher than the dollar amount that, uh, of the envelope that you've opened, that you're looking at right now, then you should guess higher for the unopened sealed envelope. And if the, if the uh, random number that you've, uh, uh, that's been chosen is lower than the uh, dollar amount that you're looking at right now, then you should predict that the sealed envelope contains a sum that's lower. In other words, think of the randomizer as creating a pointer. And if, it's, uh, if it points higher than the dollar amount you have in front of you, you should guess higher. And if it points lower, you should guess uh, lower. Uh, the proof of that is uh, given in the book. Uh, it's, 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 it was stunning to me when I first read it, and yet the proof is uh, simple enough. Um, there's other versions of that which are just as remarkable. Um, and let me mention one, which I mean to this day still fascinates me. Um, J. Laurie Snell and uh, Robert Vanderby uh, apply uh, this idea to random walks. Uh, so imagine, uh, uh, say, a drunk, uh, a drunkard's walk is what we call it, uh, walking in a straight line where the drunk has a 50% probability of stepping forward and a 50% probability of stepping backward. So if we were to track his position uh, on a number line, uh, he's moving forward and backward randomly, it might look something like, um, and if we mark his position with a, with a number, a natural number, like say 10, then uh, the history might look something like 10, then 11, 12, back to 11, 10, 9, 8, and then forward, 9, 10, randomly, much like a drunk would walk. Anyway, if you just came upon this drunk walking through the fog and just uh, approached him right in uh, mid-walk, you know, right in the middle of this process, if I were to ask, do you have any way of predicting his very next step? Will it be forward to the next higher number or back to the... Uh, uh, next lower number? Uh, the answer to that is clearly no. I mean, you could predict with probability 50%. It's like predicting the toss of a coin. You couldn't do it with, uh, with a probability of anything other than 50%. But interestingly enough, if uh, we were to ask, uh, when you're looking at this drunk, um, can you predict uh, where he was previously to his present position? assuming you have no knowledge of that, that you just came upon him by walking through the fog. Using this uh, Blackwell technique, it turns out that you can do it with probability greater than um, 50%. I mean, to me, it's just amazing uh, uh, because intuitively uh, you would think, well, predicting the forward direction is uh, sort of equivalent to 
predicting the uh, where was the uh, drunk previously, but in actuality, that's not true. It reminds me of uh, a saying, and I, I, I can never remember if, if this was by uh, Niels Bohr or Yogi Berra, but uh, they say prediction is difficult, especially about the future. And, and that's certainly the, the case here. I mean, you, you just cannot predict the future, the probability, uh, anything other than 50%. But uh, we can predict uh, with, with some level of success where the drunk was previously. That's extremely interesting. But I must admit, I'm more intrigued by the envelope framing of the problem than I am by the drunkard walking along, because just the idea that you could improve on your chances of which envelope contains more money that just sort of blows me yeah, away. Yeah, they're, they're both equally fascinating. It's um, it's um, I enjoy talking to people about it because inevitably, when the topic comes up, uh, the initial response is always, "No, something's wrong. You know, that's not right." But uh, you know, when you look at the mathematics behind it, it's it's foolproof. Uh, and like you say, it may not be a paradox. It uh, it is what it is. Yeah, I think also. Um, it's hard to imagine a talk about expectation without going through one of the most intriguing situations that I've ever encountered. And that occurred a few years ago when there was an article in the column, Ask Marilyn, that provoked an absolute firestorm of reader response. And it involved the idea of expectation, and it's currently called the Monty Hall problem. I think most of our listeners will know who uh, Monty Hall was. And so so if they don't, um, just watch reruns of a TV show called Let's Make a Deal. And anyway, I think our listeners would find it very interesting if you discussed it. Yeah, it's um, there's been a lot uh, written about this problem. And of course, uh, you are correct. It, uh, the problem gets its name from the host of the uh, popular uh, TV show. Uh, the host uh, was uh, Monty Hall. The TV show ran for many years. Um the uh, problem was popularized by Marilyn Voss uh, Savant in her weekly newspaper column called Ask Marilyn. Uh, the problem goes like this. Um, the host, uh, Monty Hall, uh, is up on stage and he shows the contestant um, three closed curtains. Uh, they all appear identical to the contestant, who I believe is out in the audience looking at the stage, uh, behind one of the three curtains is a prize of value. Uh, it could be thousands of dollars. We'll say it's a car, a brand new car. Behind the other two curtains are worthless gifts or gag gifts, uh, goats or um, something along those lines. Now, the contestant is asked to randomly select one of the three curtains and uh, the contestant, the player, uh, does. And of course, at that point, uh, the player knows that there's a one-third probability that they've selected the one with the big prize, uh, the one behind which is the uh, is the car. Um, well, without actually opening the curtain at that point, uh, what Monty uh, does, what the host does, is he opens one of the other two uh, closed curtains. And uh, he does so in such a way as to expose one of the gag gifts. So he will open one of the other two curtains, and there's goats that the player can see. So what the player is dealing with now is uh, the chosen curtain, which remains closed. Um, the player doesn't know what's behind that curtain. And one other curtain that remains closed uh, on the stage. The contestant is given the option now and given a choice. Do you want to stick 
and uh, hold on to your choice of curtains and then ultimately uh, you know uh, the curtain will be opened and you, you'll get whatever's behind it or do you want to switch to the other closed curtain now um, in her article uh, Marilyn argues that at this point what the contestant should do is switch so as to maximize the uh, expected uh, gain or uh, to maximize the uh, the expectation, the mathematical expectation, the payoff. Um, she is correct um, uh, when she says uh, in the article that that is the correct thing to do, what the player should do is switch. The interesting thing about all this is that as soon as she wrote that, she received over 10,000 letters, the vast majority of which were uh, viciously critical, uh, some of them just flat out rude, uh, telling her that no, uh, there would be no point in switching. At this point, uh, uh, the, the people that wrote in were arguing that it's a 50-50 thing. If, if the player just uh, uh, sticks with the chosen curtain or switches to the other one, uh, there's a one-half probability either way. It doesn't matter. And the, the letters, uh, and I include some of them in the book, are actually funny. They're vicious. They're critical of her. Uh, some of them are, 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 are just uh, just out and out rude. Uh, uh, they talk about her lack of education. Um, uh, her uh, she, she should get a PhD in mathematics before she writes about these things like this. Uh, one even criticized her as being a woman and not <laughs> not knowing enough. I mean, just vicious, awful things. Um, it turns out uh, her argument was right, and um, I, I have a way of 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 sort of convincing uh, maybe the audience at this point why was right um, uh, by doing a similar, maybe simpler example. Um, if, uh, Jim, if I were to ask you to guess my birthday right now, um, you know your, uh, your chance of that would uh, not be good. But uh, go ahead and guess. Uh, what day of the year was I born? Um, May 5th, that's today. Okay. Uh, now, uh, you know, you might be right. But uh, let me make it a little bit easier for you. Uh, you can stick with your choice of May 5th, or uh, let me give you one other option, May 30th. And you can stick with the May 5th choice, or you can switch to May 30th. Now, uh, if I were to pay you, say, $1,000 for guessing my birthday correctly, would you switch at this point? And um, would you stick with the May 5th choice, or would you switch over to May 30th? Um, I can't really see much difference, but uh, uh, I can't really see much difference between May 5th and May 30th. Uh, and I, I don't see, you know, I don't see how it would make a significant difference one way or the other. Well, in actuality, your choice to begin with, the probability of that being correct uh, was and remains, uh, say, one out of how many days in the year, say, 365. And the fact that I've narrowed it down to these two other possibilities doesn't change a thing. Uh, your chance of being correct, sticking with May 5th, remains uh, uh, one out of uh, 365. Oh, you're telling me that either May 5th or May 30th yes. is correct. Yes. Okay, I didn't realize that. Yes. I thought you were just no, some no. other other day at random. No, no. Okay, well, in that case, uh, in, in that case, I think I see the argument that uh, Marilyn was putting forth yes. that uh, um, 
there's nothing that changed the fact that May 5th was only had a 1 in 365 possibility. But obviously, uh, uh, obviously, if you're saying that um, it's either May 5th or May 30th, um, then uh, the chances are much greater that it's May 30th because nothing changed. Exactly. The 1 in 365. And so I guess in another four weeks or so, I'll be able to wish you a happy birthday. That's true. I, I I, the key thing here is that I narrowed it down only after you made your guess. And uh, in other words, once you made that guess of May 5th, then when I gave you the other option of May 30th at that point, and when I told you it's down to those two, it, it, it really doesn't change things any. It's, uh, uh, I'm not adding any additional, uh, 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 you know, if you stick with May 5th, uh, your chance remains the same of uh, still one out of 365, in which case you should switch. I'll try and remember it just in case we cross paths and I have to remember to buy you uh, buy you lunch or something like that on your birthday. Right. Uh, extremely important. Um, of course, you will, you will reciprocate on mine, which is August 29th. Okay. <laughs> I, uh, I've always been intrigued by possible ways to win for losing to create a winning strategy out of the game with negative expectation. It obviously seems self-contradictory, and you discussed earlier that there's one way in which people try it, namely the double-up strategy in Las Vegas, but that doesn't work. But you do discuss one extremely counterintuitive situation in which this seems possible. Could you talk a little bit about Ratchet's and Perondo's paradox? Yeah, it... Um in some cases, it uh, definitely is possible. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Um, it's called Perondo's Paradox, uh, and, uh, created by a Spanish physicist, Juan Perondo. Um, it was created, he, he, he came up with this while thinking about ratchet mechanisms. Uh, let me just talk about a ratchet a, a little bit. A, a, a ratchet is a, sort of a a wheel mechanism. It's, it's a ratchet Nepal, but, but it's basically a mechanical device uh, which allows movement in only one direction. Uh, I think some listeners will be uh, familiar with a ratchet wrench uh, for tightening bolts. And basically the idea is you apply the wrench to the bolt and then you move uh, the wrench back and forth and back and forth uh, on the bolt. But as you do that, the uh, wrench will turn the bolt in only one direction only. So it's as if the wrench is sort of uh, extracting uh, one direction out of this random back and forth movement being done by the hand, uh, uh, the user's hand applied to the wrench. Anyway, uh, Perando uh, began thinking about whether um, uh, such things uh, would occur uh, naturally uh, in uh, other uh, areas. And uh, just in general, if some sort of a, a one direction, uh, 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 if, if one direction can be uh, extracted or exploited from a randomness. And Perondo showed that uh, uh, this can be done. In particular, um, one can play uh, between uh, two losing games uh, in uh, such a way that uh, there will be a winning results. I, uh, it's uh, amazing but true. I forget who it was that uh, said this, but uh, the quote was, uh, uh, ugly parents can have beautiful children. And, um, <laughs> um, I mean, the, it, and uh, in the book, of course, I give uh, examples of these games, and they're very easy to simulate if the, if the reader wants to... Uh, 
you know, uh, program these games uh, and uh, do it themselves or even uh, go online. There's applets where you can see how the games are run. Um, uh, the actual applications of this, uh, some uh, actually do occur in um, some are just conjectured. Uh, one of the conjectured applications would be uh, that uh, maybe life itself, uh, the order involved in uh, life itself, was somehow or other extracted from uh, primordial chaos by some sort of a parando uh, uh, mechanism. That's uh, really more of a conjecture than anything else, but it's an interesting one. In actual practice, though, there are investment uh, strategies, uh, I think, that are collectively known as volatility pumping, where one can predictably, and there's the key word, predictably extract profits from uh, uh, combinations of l losing stocks. In other words, one can invest in stocks uh, that, uh, with, that show no long-term growth, yet because of the volatility involved, uh, uh, there is a predictable profit that's associated with uh, uh, these investments. Uh, I guess they can be called Parando profits, and uh, but uh, it's not a conjecture. It's an actually valid scheme, and it, it re relies on the, the volatility of the uh, investments uh, 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 for this to work. Well, it obviously wasn't working back in two thousand and eight. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, I just well, want to point out that you know, even in bad markets, you know, people make money. So sure. It's, sure. Uh, you know, it's a. Uh, it doesn't sound like the type of thing that everybody can make money at. Um, but nonetheless, the idea, you know, the idea of winning, uh, extracting winning gains from a combination of two losing strategies adroitly played is really, really fascinating. And of course, it's one of the things that I found so intriguing about your book. A lot of these situations seem to come up and they sort of tickle the mind. If you're interested in things that are piquant and fun to think about, um, that's why that's why I like your books so much. Exactly. I mean, it's not, um, it's just great fun to think about because in, in the back of my mind, there's always this gnawing thought of, can this actually be done? Can we actually do this? Can this be exploited? And, you know, whether it can be or can't be, it's just great fun to think about. Um, I absolutely agree. Um, the last chapter in your book is about Benford's Law. What is it and how is it applied in real life? Right. Um, Benford's Law is actually uh, not a mathematical theorem. It's an observation about uh, random uh, physical data. Uh, about a century ago, American astronomer Simon uh, uh, Newcomb noticed uh, that the uh, pages uh, of common logarithm tables were significantly more worn uh, up front in the beginning where numbers were being looked up. Uh, uh, real world data was being looked up beginning with a lead digit of one, two, uh, uh, three, the lower digits. Uh, then at the end of the tables where numbers were being looked up that began with uh, a lead digit of maybe seven, eight or nine. It was sort of an odd observation and uh, he wondered why this was the case, but uh, nothing really came of it. Um, uh, at that point, until the uh, uh, observation, uh, until it was rediscovered again by uh, general electric physicist Frank Benford in 1938. And um, he actually gives uh, reasons, uh, and he uh, formulated it um, uh, with a precise prescription as to why um, this uh, uh, 
as to the frequencies uh, uh, of, of uh, numbers that begin with certain lead digits. So uh, by his formula, which is a relatively simple one uh, in the book, um, numbers that begin with a lead digit of one uh, occur in random uh, uh spread out data 30% of the time, roughly. And then uh, numbers that begin with a lead digit of two occur slightly less often, and numbers that begin with a lead digit of three, and so on, and down it goes, until you get to numbers that begin with a lead digit of nine occur only 5% of the nine time. This is very counterintuitive. I mean, one would uh, normally think that uh, uh, any one of these uh, lead digits would occur maybe one-ninth of the time but uh, actually they occur according uh, to this formula. Uh, actually, as uh, I speak right now, I'm not sure, and I may have misspoke a second ago, I'm not sure uh, Benford himself actually had an explanation for this, but uh, he did come up with an accurate uh, prescription or formula as to what these frequencies should be. Uh, it was others uh, that, and, and I give these arguments in the book, why Benford's law is uh, actually does hold. Um, uh, the, the reader can find a, a pretty close example of this, even in something as simple as the 81 entries in a standard 9 by 9 multiplication table, uh, 1 through 9 times 1 through 9. If you look at those products, at those 81 products, they're very Benford-like. Uh, most of them tend to begin with a 1, and then it's not perfect, but, uh, you know, it goes on down, and very few of them begin with a, uh, begin with a 1, uh, a 9, sorry. Um, the applications of the uh, law um, mostly involve uh, fraud and the attempts to uh, fake uh, data. Uh, randomizing data is hard because uh, to fake data or to fake random data, uh, it requires that uh, the data be made to be Benford-like. And there's actually many Benford-like laws, and to uh, satisfy all of them is ex extremely difficult. Um, there are um, Excel plugins uh, that one can purchase for Excel that uh, will test uh, uh, data to see if it conforms to uh, Benford's laws. And uh, uh, such software is used uh, by insurance companies and uh, other, uh, in other uh, finance contexts to uh, check for fraud. Uh, Benford techniques have been used to uh, check for election fraud or vote count falsification. The uh, 2004 Venezuelan presidential referendum, 2006 uh, uh, Mexican uh, uh, president. Uh, presidential election, 2009 Iranian president, uh, uh, presidential election. Uh, digital analysis um, uh, has uh, is, uh, sort of become a big part of business accounting, and uh, these Benford uh, techniques are used. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, 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 Bernie Madoff in 2009, who de defrauded investors of uh, billions of dollars, um, uh, uh, Benford techniques were used, uh, and yet uh, the Madoff data passed uh, the uh, Benford tests, and there was no fraud uh, detected uh, on, uh, by Benford's method, because apparently sophisticated uh, methods of falsifying the data uh, was used. So in order to uh, outsmart uh, 
these tests, uh, uh, very sophisticated techniques do have to be used. And they were used in the case of uh, Bernie Madoff, although, as it turns out, he was convicted uh, anyway. Yeah. Um, Len, thank you so much for appearing on our show. Are you working on anything at the moment that we might enjoy hearing about? Um, yeah, you will greatly enjoy it once it's published. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I've actually, no, I mean, frankly, uh, there's a lot of stuff going on in my mind. And uh, the two books that I've written before, it it takes a long time for it to gel, and it's still in the gelling process right now. Uh, once I start writing, it goes fairly quickly, and I'm sure there will be, there, there's stuff coming down the line, but uh, I'm not there yet. Well, we'll look forward to it. Um, finally, how can our listeners find out more about you and Unexpected Expectations? Do you have a website? Uh, I do not have a personal website. However, there would be two ways. Uh, one is the uh, publisher. It's uh, crcpress.com. So again, that's crcpress.com. And uh, once um, uh, the listener goes to that website, then, of course, um, I can be searched uh, by name, Leonard Wapner, or either of my two books, uh, The Pee and the Sun or uh, Unexpected Expectations. You can search on uh, either one and read some reviews there. Um, and then the other way is I, I would love to be emailed directly. Um, and uh, my direct email address at El Camino College is lwapner, that's L-W-A-P-N-E-R, at elcamino.edu. Uh, E-L-C-A-M-I-N-O dot E-D-U. And uh, I will answer all emails uh, that uh, hopefully I receive. Len, thanks again. And we'll look forward to when all the stuff that's running around your mind actually gels, <laughs> crystallizes, and becomes a book. Yeah, thanks thank you, again. It's, it's been lots of fun. I, I, I really enjoyed this, and I hope to hear from, uh, from some of the listeners. Take care. Okay. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.